Um, today we're talking about how to celebrate Christmas because we all have different traditions. Um, some people like to open presents before they go to sleep. Some people like to, you know, wait until Christmas morning to open their presents. Some of you guys have family traditions. We all have different ways of celebrating Christmas, and we're not here to talk about the little details of how we ought to celebrate Christmas, but the issue that I want to tackle today is, is, well, why have we been celebrating Christmas for so long, and is it worth celebrating Christmas? And if you've been here with us in the past years, you probably heard me say something along the line of, well, Jesus wasn't really born on December 25th. You know, I don't know why we celebrate on the 25th. But the bottom line is, Jesus was born sometime, and we want to celebrate that, right? <laughs> so um, a few years ago, maybe about like seven to ten years ago, there was this whole, maybe it wasn't that long ago, but there was this whole thing going on at Starbucks where they didn't put the word Merry Christmas on the cup, and people got really offended, specifically Christians got really offended, and they started saying things like, what's the reason for the season? You know, because if it rhymes, then you have a good valid point, right? So it's, what's the reason for the season? You know, we got to make sure that it's all about the birth of Jesus. And so should we take away all the other traditions? Should we take away the Santa Claus? Should we take away Frosty? No. <laughs> should we take away the presents? Oh, no, right? <laughs> should we take away um, the family dinners? Should we take away everything that might, quote unquote, get in the way of celebrating the birth of Jesus? How are we supposed to celebrate Christmas? Should we stop going, should we stop shopping? You know, should we stop doing all these things? Should we have no more trees? You know, should we stop ornament making? Should we stop, you know, posting on our social media about how Christmas is important to us? Like, what are we supposed to do with Christmas? And so today we want to talk about that because when Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, it was a big deal. It was a big deal to us today, and it was a big deal to them back then. But back then, maybe there was some different feeling and different meaning to the idea of a birth of a Savior. So I want to talk about that today because at the core of Christmas is the birth of Jesus, right? And when it comes to talking about the day that you were born, a lot of times we like to make it into a really cool story. I'll give an example. Um, when people say, hey, Koss, tell me about the day you were born, I, um, I'm so tempted to start the story like this. It was like, it was a dark and gloomy day. The, cards, the clouds parted and a ray of light came upon this one hospital. And out came a baby boy. His name? Cots. You know, like, dramatic. I want to make it dramatic, right? Why, and, and if you, what you don't want to hear is, like, if you go to your parents, hey, how was I born? You know, tell me the story of the day I was born. What you don't want to hear is, it was like a regular Tuesday, and you, you just kind of came out, and then we went home. Like, you don't want to hear that story, right? Why don't we want to hear stories like that? When we tell stories about our birth, we want to make it into the big pos- biggest possible as possible. You know, we want to make it into the biggest thing in the world. Why? Because we all want our lives to be meaningful. Let's get that slide. There we go. We want, all of us, we all want our lives to be meaningful. You don't want to hear a story of like, yeah, you know, the day you were born, it was like, it's like a regular day. You know, we decided to stop by McDonald's on the way there and we had a burger. And man, that burger was really, really good. I don't know, maybe because it was, you know, I don't know. Oh, yeah, you were born too. Like, you don't want to be a footnote in a story. You want to be the main character of that story because we all want our lives to be meaningful, right? And I think part of the reason why a lot of people are against the idea of, of crowding Christmas with other things is because we don't want to make Jesus into just one thing that happened in the midst of all these other things. We want to make him the main thing. And so I understand the heart behind why people want to make Jesus the season, reason for the season, right? There would be no Christmas if it wasn't for him. But it all stems back from this idea that we all, each individual, every single person here, we all want our lives to be meaningful. This is why we tell stories like that. This is why you all want to have a special skill that you could do better than any of your friends. 
right? This is why when you t- tell stories about your vacation, if it was good, you want to make sure that your friends know it was really good. And if it was bad, you want to make sure it was the most dramatic, like, thing that you overcame in your life. Or, you know, like, you want to make sure we, we overcompensate, you know, why, why do we do this? It's because we want our lives to mean something. And we want our friends to know that our lives mean something, right? And so today I want to share with you one character from the Bible, from the Christmas story specifically, right? This character, he had an issue. Like, he really, really wanted his life to be meaningful. And today we're going to be focusing on the villain of the Christmas story. Now, there's two biographies of Jesus in, out of the four in the Bible that talks about, that chronicles his birth narrative. The Luke version the guy named Luke wrote this one version with the shepherds and everything. That is the real, actual Christmas story. The Matthew version, where the Magi's come and stuff like that, his birth story, um, we couple that into the Christmas story with the, you know, with the wise men, Magi, all that stuff, because um, we want to make the story fuller. And so we're going to be looking at that story, and specifically we're going to be looking at one of the characters, the villain of that story, and his name is Herod the Great. This is what people think he looked like. He looks like Santa Claus, kind of, right? <laughs> okay, and he is actually one of the more wiser people that we know in the story, and it's because he's a historical character. And so I want to tell you a story. He's actually, this is one of my favorite stories of, of Herod the Great, and this is how it goes. So around that time, there was a Caesar. His name was Julius Caesar. Here's a picture of a little bust of him right there right? He conquered most of Europe and he became the most powerful person in the world at that time. Very, very powerful guy, right? And as he was becoming more and more powerful, the people in Rome, because he's from Rome, okay, people in Rome, there's these people, senators, they started to think of ways of trying to get rid of him because he just didn't agree with where they thought that Rome should go. So the people, and if you guys have read some Shakespeare, you'll know that Julius was eventually assassinated. So next screen. So it's like black, right? Like he's assassinated. And this is around 44 BC. And then the problem when somebody, a ruler falls is that there's an empty throne. And the question is, who is going to take his spot? Well, there's actually two people who are in contention for this top spot. The first guy, his name is Mark Antony. Mark Antony, okay? You probably heard of him. Okay, he is related to Caesar this way, okay? Julius Caesar had many kids. His daughter, his name, daughter's name was Octavia, right? He married her. So basically, he is a son-in-law of Julius Caesar, okay? The other person that's in running for the spot is Octavian, which is his great-nephew, right? So we have two people who are somewhat related that are trying to get, get to this throne. Now, like, who's going to win the throne? Who's going to be the next powerful person in the world, right? Well, it turns out, and maybe you guys know this part of the story, is that Mark Antony, although he was already married, he had a lover on the side. Her name? Cleopatra. You probably heard that name. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor, right? Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Okay, so what happened in this story is as Octavian started to find out more about Aunt Mark Antony, he decided, I need to, like, mess up his reputation as much as possible so that people hate him. So he started saying things like, did you know that Mark Antony, he has kids with Elizabeth Taylor back in Egypt, and his will, right, like, Cleopatra, okay. <laughs> I'm like, why are you guys laughing? This is not funny. Now it is. Okay. So he, you know, so he, basically he was trying to swallow his reputation, right? Even to a point where people are even questioning, is Rome at the top of his list of things that are important or is it Egypt? And as they were trying to figure this out, in comes Herod, okay? Herod needs to take sides. Which side are you going to take, Herod? Herod, are you going to be on Octavian's side or are you going to be in Mark Antony's side? This is the side he took. He took 
Mark Antony's side. And he was loyal to him. He did everything that he told him to do. He was trying to start this smear campaign against Octavian. Like, he did everything he could to make sure that Mark Antony won the throne. Because if he did, he'll be sitting at the right-hand side of Mark Antony. He'll be the second most powerful person in the world. That was his goal, okay? But what happened was Octavian had all of Rome behind him, and eventually this happened. He killed him off. So now, if you're Herod, you're wishing for a miracle because this is what these are his choices now. Herod is like, okay, either A, I run for my life, which they'll probably find me eventually, uh, so I'll keep running for the rest of my life. Number two, I'll just end my life here and then I don't have to worry about it. At least I'll die at the hands of myself and not the hands of you know, my enemy. Or number three, maybe they'll, they'll just blow away. <laughs> you know? And he was like looking at all three choices and this is when his, the wheels in his head starts turning. He's like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I've been on the wrong horse. I need to make sure that I survive. Why? Because I want my life to mean something. You see, the reason he got into this mess in the first place is because he thought, if I want my life to mean something, then I need to make sure that I kiss up to as much as I can to the most powerful person in the world. It just happens that he'd been on the wrong horse, right? So he's like, how am I supposed to survive and still have meaning in my life? So as history tells us, this is really interesting. He found out that... um, that Octavian, he eventually picked, took the throne, and he changed his name from Octavian to Caesar Augustus. That's his new name. He's, he looks even more triumphant now. He's like, uh, very strong, right? And he knew that his life was on the line. He knew that Herod was like, I need to keep running or I'm going to die. But one day he decided to do this really interesting thing. He found out that Caesar Augustus, through friends, he found out that he was going to be on this island of Rhodes. And so he made his way over there, and he walked into the presence of Caesar Augustus, and everybody's like, whoa. We're trying to get you and kill you, and here you are coming to us. What's going on? He's like, look, just hear me out. And this is Herod, like, being really, really smart, right? He's like, this is what he says. Oh, great Caesar, as you know, you have known that I have been very, very loyal to Mark Antony until he died. From this day forward, I'm going to take that same loyalty, and I'm going to pledge it to you. Now, Caesar Augustus looked at this whole thing and said, wow, I am impressed. This guy has guts that he would walk into my throne room on this island, that he would do all this. He's risking his life. This is amazing, right? He was so impressed that he said, you know what, Herod? I'm so impressed by you, and I know that you're going to be loyal to me in the way that you're loyal to Mark Antony. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all of this land called Judea, and I'm going to make you king over that land. Okay, so... Herod the Great became the king of Judea. He's not even Jewish, and he became the king of Judea. Now, because of that, he, went, you know, he was like, yes, I have a great legacy. He did everything he could to hold on to that power. So what did he do? He wanted to make sure, because by the time he took the throne, he was already old. Okay, so he was like, I want to make sure that my name lasts forever. So after I die, I want to make sure one of my kids takes over the throne so the name Herod carries on. So, what, so this is really interesting. So he picks a son, and he says, you are going to be the next king, and I'm going to groom you. I'm going to prep you to become the next king. And he does that, and then eventually another of his sons rises up, and he's like, you know what? He shows more promise. I, I, think, I think he should be the next king. And he was so worried that you know, there would be some kind of a battle inside the family, you know, that he made sure that there would be no internal turmoil. He killed the first son so that makes sure that the second son doesn't have anybody trying to take his throne. And that didn't just happen once. That happened numerous times. He had many kids. Okay, so, so, he was, so after the second kid rises, he's like, you know what? 
that kid, my, you know, he had many wives too. It's like that kid, he looks like he has more potential. So he kills his first, the second kid so that the third kid can become the next king. After a while, the kids are like, dad, I really don't want to be king. I don't have to be a king. Thanks for the thought, but I'm okay. I'm not even tempted, right? Not only that, he would even kill the mother of that boy to make sure that the mother doesn't retaliate later on in life. I mean, he did everything he can to make sure that he left a legacy. He really, really cared about having meaning in his life. Now, you're kind of like, so, Pastor, are you, are you saying that if I want meaning in my life, that we're going to end up like Herod? And like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying at all, right? <laughs> no. But what's really interesting in this story is that as this was happening, just four miles, just a little south of where, where this was taking place, there was a story of a, of a real king that, 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 that came about. And so for someone like King Herod, who was basically pretty insecure, he's, he hears this rumor about a kid being born that's being called the king of the Jews. And so you could understand why this was so threatening to him. This is where we pick up the story of the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2, this is how the story starts. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so there's a Christmas story right there. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So after this is what happened after the Christmas story. Uh, Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, these are the wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, and this is the question that the Magi asked. If the Magi knew exactly who King Herod was, they would not ask this question. Okay, but they didn't know. They were, I guess that's why the new translation says Magi instead of wise people, because they're not that wise. This is what they said, okay? Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? To Herod said, what? I mean, like, this is not the best question to ask. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Herod got his throne because some dude in Rome said, this is your, now your kingdom, right? The Jews are saying, we saw a star. I mean, like, who, who are you going to believe, right? It's a star. Okay, so, so, I mean, they're like, we're here to worship him. The word worship here is not just like we're going to sing songs to him. The word here means to get on your knees and realize there's something bigger in life than yourself. This is exactly what Herod wanted for himself because he wanted to have meaning in his life. But instead, here come some people from outside the country who comes into his kingdom and says, we're looking for the real king. Let's see how it continues. Verse 4. Oh, wait, let's go back. Wait, okay. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And we understand why. Now we know why, why everybody was so disturbed, because this means that some people are going to die. Okay, next verse. Okay. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So he's like, hey, uh, so this king of the Jews, this real king of the Jews, where is he going to be born? It's like, oh, it's Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. It's like, you know, for being a king of the Jews, you should know the, the holy text of the Jews. I, I guess you haven't read it, but can you just tell, you know, just teach him. So this is what the prophet says. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, which Herod's like, but that was supposed to be me. <laughs> no, nope, there's going to be another one, who will shepherd my people Israel. Imagine what Herod was feeling at this time. He's probably in panic mode. It's like, oh, oh my gosh. Wait, wait, so he's a baby? So he's, he's like, okay, it'd be easier to get him now before he rises in power. So this is what he does. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exact time the star appeared. Like, okay, I know you've been traveling for a while, and scholars submit that these people 
who came from out of the country, they looked at the star and they've been chasing after the star for about two years now. Two years. So he's like, when did you exactly see the star? And they're like, about two years ago. And you'll see ex- examples of that later. So next verse. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Notice he says child and not baby because by now it's been a few years already. It's been two years. Next verse. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. I mean, this is a very dark story, doesn't it? Don't you feel? Merry Christmas, by the way. <laughs> I mean, this is not the, like, hey, let's gather around a tree and sing some songs kind of story. Let's continue. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child, again, child, not baby, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, and fruitcake. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. <laughs> and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route because somehow they were inspired to find out that this is all a trap. Once Herod finds out where the baby Jesus is, then, then something bad's going to happen. Let's go on. When they had gone, the angels of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Just get out of here. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And then, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. History also tells us that Herod was suffering from a kidney disease, and that it was, ex- it was super painful to a point where at one point he tried to take his own life, but his cousin found him and brought him back, to which he killed his cousin for doing that, you know. But eventually he eventually died of pain and gangrene, and, you know, by the, by the late 60s, he was like 68, 69 years old when he passed away, which is way beyond life expectancy at that time. And so Jesus and his family were in Egypt until all this happened. Meanwhile, when Herod realized that he has been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under, and in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This is why he wanted to know when the, the star appeared, because then he would know who to kill. The Christmas story has a lot of blood attached to it, a lot of deaths. And like I said, shortly after King Herod dies, And when he died, King Herod ordered all his people. He said, when I die, there's going to be some big celebration because people here don't like me. And so just to make sure that people are mourning on the day I die, I order everybody here to kill the important people in your lives on the day that I die. Because then somebody will be mourning on the day that that I pass away. But what we find out is on the day he died, they didn't carry out that order. And so everybody actually just ended up celebrating, right? But that's, that's how, that's the kind of guy he is right? And the whole point here is this, is that Herod did all this stuff because he wanted to have meaning in his life. He wants his life to be meaningful. And what I'm also, like, remember what I said, if you want meaning in your life, I'm not implying that you're going to go become like Herod and kill babies. I'm not saying that at all. It's just the way that he went and tried to achieve that goal. He tried to get meaning, meaning in his life by, by doing some really bad stuff, right? It's because of this, okay? And I want you to pay close attention to this because finding meaning in your life is not bad. It's that what, what Herod did was, was bad. The Herod tried to achieve meaning through power. 
And I understand why he would do this. Because at that time in history, people believed in Zeus, where he was this mighty, powerful God who, if you do something wrong, lightning bolt, you know, right? Or Poseidon, where if you're on the sea, he will rock your boat over and it will kill everybody on board. Why? Because he had power, right? Or like Caesar, Caesar Augustus. With just the word from Caesar, Caesar's mouth, he could have people killed. That guy, gone. And he would die. And so it makes sense that back then, everything you want to do to make sure that you, you maintain this power, had, had to, I mean, to, to find meaning, had to do with power. So power was everything to King Herod. He would do anything he can to maintain his power. And what this also means is that he can't, let, he can't show even an ounce of weakness. Because if he showed to anybody that he was weak, then that's the moment when somebody could overtake his throne, right? So he did every, he, his meaning was tied to the power that he achieved through Caesar, and he was insecure because of that. And for that reason, he would do anything, including murdering hundreds of babies. Meaning, finding meaning in your life is not bad, but if your way to g- finding meaning in your life is through power, that I'm better than somebody else, you end up doing some pretty crazy stuff. Did you know that King Herod, in order to let everybody know how powerful he is, he built a lot of things. One of the things he built was this thing called the Herodium. I want to show you a picture of this. This is an aerial shot. This is a huge mountain. Before, there was no mountain there. But because Herod wanted to, he built a palace for himself. He built a mountain, and on top of the mountain, he built a, a big castle, basically. And on the side of it, he built this pool that was so big where there's no water. This is the middle of a desert. He, brought, he made a pool in there so big that you have to, wear, you have to ride a boat to get to the, to the little gazebo that he had in the middle of that pool. That's the kind of guy he is. By the way, side note, when Jesus says, if you have faith, you'll be able to tell that mountain you know, to go into the water, he was making a reference to this mountain right here. He was saying, if you have faith, you'll be able to accomplish things greater than Herod. But that's a different sermon. Okay. okay. This guy was so addicted to power, and the reason he wanted power is because he wanted meaning in his life. He was so addicted to power that he built a mountain and built a, a castle on top of it. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. Now, like I said, the reason why he does this is because everything around him just pointed to the fact that if you want meaning in your life, you have to be powerful. You have to be better than everybody else in this world. And so when he found out about this baby that came into this world who was the real king of the Jews, he was threatened by it. But what's really interesting about this story is that when people, like the people, the Jews, when they expected this, this to God to come onto the pages of history, they expected this savior this messiah they expected this person to come into the pages of history in the same way that herod expected to be so in other words they were expecting this god figure to come into the pages of history pounding down the door saying who here is destroying my people herod and he goes over to herod boom you know who else king caesar okay uh boom you know like they expected this 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 god in abad to show up to be this powerful guy right But what happened was really interesting because everybody expected God to come onto the pages of history with power because people's imaginations back then couldn't go beyond this idea of meaningfulness and power being linked to each other. They couldn't think of anything else, right? People expected God to come in through the front door. But when we read the Christmas story, what we discover is something completely different. 
As a matter of fact, if you read the Luke version of the story, this is what you'll discover. That Jesus came quietly and humbly in the arms of first century teenagers who gave birth in a barn because they couldn't find room in an inn and was visited by shepherds who were unclean outcasts of society. Everything about this slide right here is the opposite of what people expected. Everybody expected some powerful boom to be the entrance of this Messiah character. But instead, God entered this world through the back door. This savior of the world, this most powerful character in the world, okay, came in as a baby. In a manger, which is a feeding trough, where it smells like donkey. This is how God showed up in our midst. And the question is, why? God, why did you have to come onto, into, into history in a, form of the, in a form of a baby? Why did you have to do that? Why couldn't you come in? Because if I were to retell history and if I had my own version of this, I would probably make the story sound like this. I would say, so then God came in and there was a big boom. It was so bright. And he showed up at the doorsteps of Caesar and he just snapped his fingers and he fell down. And then he showed up here and he did this and, you know, and then he started this big thing. He wiped away all the evil of the world. That's what I want God to do, right? So why did God show up on the pages of history as a baby? Well, one of the first Christian leaders, his name is Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. This is how he describes it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this, this letter. It's, it's called the book of Philippians. We're going to read from verse 6 to 9. And at the end, I'm going to read the verse before that because that's going to reveal to you the answer of why. Okay, so pay close attention to what Paul says here. He says, Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What he's saying here is, when Jesus came into this world, he could have showed up and been all, say, like, hey, I'm God, worship me. You know, like, hey, I'm God. You know, you, I, I, you should cease to exist. You know, like, he could have just done that. But he said he did not. Instead, what did he do? It says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human kindness. So Paul here, he says, when Jesus showed up, he didn't show up as God. He didn't just show up as a human. He showed up as a servant. He showed up as, as one of the lowest levels of humanity possible. He hasn't explained why yet, but he keeps talking. He keeps saying, okay, he said, this is what he says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He says, whatever this reason is, the reason why Jesus came as a baby this one reason that why he did this even led to him to die on a cross. He was so obedient to this one purpose that he was even not just to come as a baby, but even to die eventually a, a criminal's death. Therefore, as a result, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. He says, because he was obedient to this one reason why he came to earth as a baby and eventually died on a cross, this one reason why he did this, right? And because the way that he lived his life, now he is the most powerful being in the world. And he didn't achieve this power by conquering other people. He didn't achieve this power, this number one seat. He didn't do that by kissing up to some Caesar or killing babies. He didn't do any of that. The way he did that is this one thing. And we're going to rewind all the way back to verse 5. And this is what he says. In your, talking to Christians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul is giving this story of the story of Jesus, and he says, because this is how Jesus lived his life and then eventually was exalted to the highest place, you ought to also live your life like that 
in your relationships. What is he saying here? He's saying the reason why he did this is because he wanted to put on display what real love looked like. He said it's because Jesus was obedient to loving people. That's why he came as a baby. Because he was so committed to loving people, he was willing to die on a cross for the people who didn't deserve to be died. To, you know, right? He said, like, because he was so obedient to this idea of loving one another, he was reaching out to the people who were outcasts in society. Because he was so loving and he was so committed to this mission of loving the people around him, he was willing to become a servant. So what he's saying here is this. The Christmas story is it's a reminder that God does not measure greatness by power, but by love. At the end of your life, when God looks at you and says, how did you live your life? He's not going to say, how many times did you attend church? He's not going to say, were you a CEO? Were you a president? Were you a governor? Were you some, you know, like, were you an NBA star? Were you good at what you did? He's not going to ask these questions. The one question he's going to ask is, were you obedient to love? Did you give yourself away for the sake of loving somebody? Because if you did, that's the metric I'm looking at. That's what's going to make me see how, how, how much meaning you have in your life. Love is at the core of the Christmas story. It's a reminder to us that, you know, because Jesus came as a baby, it's supposed to, when you look at that, it's supposed to remind you, oh yeah, this whole thing is all about love. It's all about self-sacrifice. It's all about putting ourselves in situations that you, will, you usually won't find yourself in for the sake of loving the people around you. And so, when it comes to how we should celebrate Christmas, we shouldn't be doing it through, like, violence in the way that Herod did, right? Through fear, Herod did, right? We should be doing it through love. So, I'm going to give you a few pointers on how we should celebrate Christmas, okay? I'm not going to tell you when to open your gifts. I'm not going to tell you on any of that stuff, okay? But I'm just going to give you some simple steps. Number one, know that God is now with us. That's the meaning of Christmas, that God, this powerful, almighty, king of the universe God, came down just so that he could hang out with us. He crammed himself in this little baby that's defenseless, completely vulnerable. Why? Just because he loved us. He's in our midst now. And step two is this. Once you realize that, number two is ask, well, what does this mean to me? What does it mean that Jesus has now put himself into a human body so that he could be with us, right? That means when Jesus came down and became a baby, he was actually allowing himself to be cared for. I mean, the God of the universe who doesn't need to be cared for, now he's being cared for by these teenage kids. Uh, If you guys weren't here before, Mary and Joseph were probably in their early teens when, when Jesus was born. So that's what I mean by teenagers. That was the Jewish custom back then. Have kids when you're young. Okay, so I mean that is like, so what does that mean? It means maybe this means I should let people take care of me. Like all my life I've been working for somebody else. Maybe if they offer to help, maybe I'll let them help me. Maybe that's the way that I'm going to celebrate Christmas this year, right? Or maybe all your life you felt like you were being selfish and you feel like I need to go and, and put myself in a situation I usually won't find myself in because that's my act of love. When I'm obedient to love, that's what I would do right? Because step three is once you figure out this question of what you're supposed to do, number three is you should act accordingly. So for some of you, you guys like to go caroling. 
because that's the way that you see Jesus incarnate in the things around you. When you go from house to house and sing songs, you're like, you know, for some reason I feel like I'm spreading the love that God has given me. If that's you, then go do that. For some of you, the way you show love to other people is through gifts. Go to Target today and buy the things that are on sale and give it to your friends, you know, and say, this is my act of love to you because when I love the people around me, that's how I see Jesus in, in the, the love of Jesus in the people around me, by giving gifts. For some of you, maybe it's saying no to the things you usually say yes to because it's taking time away from your family. So you, you're like, hey, you know, uh, I'm usually working this day. Usually I'm saying yes to doing all these things, but this, just today, Christmas, I'm going to say no to those things so I can spend time with the people I love. Maybe that's how you see Jesus incarnate in the things around you. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's time to forgive somebody. You held a grudge for a very long time. But when you're obedient to love, this is what you would do. You would say, I know you've been trying to seek for my forgiveness, and I think I'm ready to say, I forgive you. Maybe for some of you, it's time to invite somebody to your house that you've been avoiding. <laughs> There's that one crazy relative that you just don't send invitations to. And this might be this Christmas where you say, hey, I would love to have you over today because it's Christmas. And this is how I show my love to you. This is what it looks like when I'm obedient to love. Whatever it is, act accordingly. So should we get rid of Santa Claus? Should we get rid of Frosty, the tree, the presents, the decorations, the fried chicken for some of you who do that, <laughs> right? Because I don't think that you're going to be able to find Jesus, make Jesus the reason for the season anymore if you take those things away. As a matter of fact, maybe that's the way that you express Jesus into the holiday is by the presence and through Santa and through Frosty and through the trees and the you know, ornaments. Maybe that's you. It's different for everybody. We have no right to judge people on how they celebrate Christmas. So how do we celebrate Christmas? Find Jesus in the traditions that we celebrate. Amen? I want to show you this video. So uh, let's take a look at the screen. This year, we're finally going to get Christmas right. If it's not Jesus, it's got to go. But would that really get us to focus on the reason for the season? We might find it easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The point of Jesus' birth was to bring God into humanity. What if we were able to see Jesus in all the traditions? The first Christmas was about God with us. Let's make this Christmas about us with God. May we see the joy of Christ in our kids' laughter. The love of Christ with our family. The heart of Christ in the gifts we give. The provision of Christ 
in the meals we share. The light of Christ as we decorate our homes. The wonder of Christ in the songs we sing. The hope of Christ in the quiet moments we share. Because when we see Jesus, we are getting Christmas right.